Good morning. Uh, my name is John Cherney. I'm one of the pastors here at IGC. I'm so glad that wherever you are, um, you've chose to, to join us for worship this morning. And while Christmas Day has passed, as David mentioned, this morning we will be spending our time in the Word looking at the birth of Christ. This morning, the title of my sermon is Advent Changes Everything. And in our time together, I'm hoping to persuade you of this because Advent, the, the coming of Christ, is the climax of human history. So together, um, the way we're going to do this, it's going to be a little bit of an unconventional sermon. We're actually going to go through the grand redemptive narrative of the Bible. Uh, if there, it, This would be the way of summarizing that if there was one story told from Genesis to Revelation, what is that story? And see, throughout the Old Testament, we read the history of God making for himself a people and teaching his people how to live in his world. And we see narratives of um, great battles of uh, rescue from slavery, like that of David or Moses. And we even see small narratives, like that of Ruth, of a particular family during a time of famine. And so this grand redemptive narrative, the story from Genesis to Revelation, is a shorthand way of referring to what is the central message of the Bible. And this narrative is the good news of the gospel. This narrative is um, that love has come down and that there is joy to the world far as the curse is found. So if you would, uh, grab your Bible uh, or your bulletin and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. This is going to be the main text that we keep coming back to throughout our survey of the the grand story of the Bible. And as you're turning to Isaiah, I'd like to briefly discuss what Advent means. This is not a word we typically use much. Advent simply means coming. And so Advent is the way that the church historically has celebrated the season of anticipating Jesus' birth. But it's also been more than that. It's actually also been anticipating the second Advent, when Jesus will come back. So during the season of Advent, we not only look back at the birth of Christ, like the Israelites anticipating the coming of the Messiah, he who would save all, all people, But also we look forward to his return and when he restores and he makes all things new like we just sung. So this will be our focus together this morning as we stand as a people of a kingdom that is already but not yet. And so the case I'm making this morning is that Advent changes everything. It changes how we understand our world. It changes how we live and it changes our hope for the future. So this morning, in about 30 minutes, we're going to summarize all of human history under these three major headings that you have in your bulletin. First, we will examine the promise of Advent. Second, we will look at the first Advent, the birth of Jesus. And third, we will look forward to the second Advent, to the return of Jesus. Here in the pages of the Bible, we encounter the very words of God And here is our message of joy to the world. Look with me now at Isaiah chapter 9. We'll begin reading in verse 2. This is the word of the Lord. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord, and it was given for our good. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we, um, we gather together um, to celebrate the birth of Christ. Um, we, we gather in a year that we have known little of peace, wildfires and protests and a disease ravaging the land. Lord, we, uh, we long for your peace. We long for your kingdom. And so if our hearts are discouraged by the year that we've had in 2020, um, if we're mourning loss, Lord, you, you meet us and you meet us with peace. This morning, as we look at the things that you have done from beginning to end, um, the climax of the story, the coming of the Messiah, God with man, Emmanuel. Lord, I pray that we would um, look on this familiar story, whether this is our first time in church or our hundredth or thousandth time in church, Lord, that we would look on it with fresh eyes to see the things that you are doing, to see the things that you begun even in the garden itself. Bless this time that we have. Give us uh, ears ready to hear and soft hearts to your word. Amen. So our first point this morning is the promise of Advent. In the very beginning, we see God make all things and he makes them very good. We're we're thinking here of Genesis 1 and 2. And and God places Adam and Eve in the garden to work and he gives them all manner of plants for food. He's providing for them as a loving father. But Adam and Eve are enticed by their own desire and they sin. They break the special relationship that God intended for them to have, and death enters the world. Romans 5.12 summarizes it for us this way, that through one man came sin to all men. And that sin infects all of us. In that moment, Adam and Eve, they represent all of humanity, and they sin. And this is the beginning of things not being the way they're supposed to be. See, God made his image bearers as the crowning jewel of his creation. And he made them for a special purpose. Not only does sin affect the relationship that Adam and Eve have to their God, but it also affects the relationship with each other. All things are not the way they're supposed to be. Our relationships are now distorted and twisted by sin. And this is the first thing we see in Genesis 3 and 4. We see Adam and Eve shame and blame one another. The dominion that they were to have over all of creation... Now creation itself receives a curse. Thorns and thistles will bear the ground. And we see in Romans 8 even that creation itself groans with anticipation for the day that all things will be made new. And if we keep reading the story, we keep seeing more and more of this sin spreading like a disease across every aspect of creation. We see even in Genesis 4, a brother kill his own brother. And our sin, it affects not only us, it affects not only our relationships, and it also affects our relationship with God. It affects every aspect of life. 
And so perhaps you're wondering now, hopefully I didn't lose you, but perhaps you're wondering why I started the story of Christmas in the Garden of Eden. See, even as God punishes the sin of mankind and he casts them out of the garden, he promises redemption. Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of the gospel. And this is where we're going to begin uh, this first section as we look at the promise of Advent. This is the, the curse that God gives to the serpent. He says, this is Genesis 3.15, I will put into me so hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, even though God punishes mankind's sin, he has seen fit to show them grace and mercy. And even as they're led out of the garden, there's that, that promise of Advent, that promise of redemption. And so throughout the narrative of Scripture, we see this promise expanded from the garden. Throughout generations, God is making for himself a people. He saves Noah and his family from the flood. He makes Abraham the father of nations in his old age when he shouldn't have been able to have a son. And by that, God is going to bless the whole world. He frees his people from slavery in Egypt. He hears their cries in the promised land and sends them judges to free them from their oppressors, even when they were unfaithful to him. And our God promises that from this line of David in 2 Samuel 7, that he's going to give an eternal king, a king that will sit on the throne forever and his peace will know no end. This is the promise of Advent. That throughout all of human history, God is preparing his people for his son to come. Previously, I've used the, the illustration in a couple of sermons uh, of a tapestry. And so if we think about a, a tapestry, there, there, there's threads that you see, they're woven together. And if you look at the backside of a tapestry, it's a mess. It's not the side that you're actually supposed to look at to see the image that's intended. And so we can think about the, the promise in the Old Testament is like looking at the tapestry from the back. You, you see the threads, but you're not quite sure how they're all fitting together. And we live in the moment of the, the promise being fulfilled. And we get to look at that tapestry head on in the radiance and the glory of the image of God at Jesus Christ. And so that this tapestry, we can think about it as that those threads are all coming together. And so these threads of promise that all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. That there's going to be an eternal king of peace. That he's going to be a suffering servant who takes the iniquities of his people, that God himself is going to come and shepherd his people. All of these things come together in that little manger in Bethlehem. And so for, this, for the Israelites, this picture is beginning to form. And in our, our main passage we're looking at this morning, Isaiah 9, we're learning more about who this is going to be. In the garden, we saw that this deliverer will be wounded by, on his heel, but he will be victorious and deal a death blow to a head. And this, this promise that we see to David that I've already referenced several times, this is a promise of that eternal king who will be enthroned forever. His kingdom will know no end. And God says to him, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. See, Israel, God's people, anticipated this promise. They longed for its fulfillment. And even uh, when they were unfaithful to God, God remained faithful to his promises. This is what we're seeing here in the book of Isaiah, our main passage for this morning. See, the, the kingdom was divided between north and south. Uh, Israel and Judah split from infighting. 
And Israel is conquered by the Babylonians, is carried into exile. They're refugees having to leave their home or some being enslaved, being killed. And the prophet Isaiah is now ministering to the smaller nation of Judah. And this large, these large empires, these world powers at the time, Babylonia and Assyria stand at the door and they are ready to conquer Jerusalem, Judea's capital. And God's people, they've worshipped other gods. They've neglected God's special relationship with them. The king of Judah even at the time, Ahaz, who's in the line of David, instead of listening to God's prophet's warnings for them to repent and turn from their sin, he goes and he tries to strike a deal with the Assyrians when he sees the Babylonians knocking at the door to conquer them. And so he goes to the bully on the playground, hopefully with the bigger stick, asking for help instead of trusting God. Commentators have likened this to uh, a mouse being Judah going and asking a cat, Assyria, to help them fight another cat, Babylonia. And it just doesn't work that way. This sounds like the plot of a Pixar movie. It doesn't actually happen in life. But the Lord will keep his promises to his people. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, and he will make a way with way for them. Look with me again at Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 2 and following. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle turmoil and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Keep, keep your Bible open um, as I, I kind of walk through this part that we just reread. See, this great light that will shine is Jesus. It's the promised Messiah. This good news of the gospel will, will in verse 3 will multiply like a nation. It won't only be a small group seeking to be faithful to the Lord. And Jesus will increase their joy like a joy at the harvest of good crops. They will be glad like conquerors who divide the spoils of war. And for the yoke that is promised is light. Perhaps here you're thinking about Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 11 when he says, Come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and light. God is going to do this all we see like in the days of Midian in the end of verse 4. And the, the, the days of Midian is when the, the Midianites were conquering God's people. They were raised up to judge them in Judges 7. And there's this guy Gideon, who you probably remember from Sunday school. Gideon has his 300 warriors. He started with an army that was much, much bigger. And God slowly dwindles it down so that it's only 300 men. 300 men, this, this should not, they should not have won. This is an improbable victory but it's done so that it's clearly seen that they are saved not by their own hands, not by their own swords, not by their own power, but solely by the power of their God. And so there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Judah, God's chosen people, are about to be carried off into exile. And there's a light at the end of the tunnel because God is faithful. He keeps his promises. This Messiah is going to make a day of peace. If you look back at verse 5, in which the signs of war will be gone in a fire. Throughout history, from the very beginning of the Garden of Eden, where we started, 
God has been making a way for his people by his grace and mercy. There will be a day that God ultimately delivers his people once and for all. This is the promise of Advent. Church, do you, do you see this promise of Advent? That from the very beginning, if you picture that tapestry in your head, that God has been telling a big story. That this story that he's telling is leading to a day, the peace, the shalom that we were intended for. Things not no longer being not the way they're supposed to be in a world with sin, but things being restored. That day is coming. This is what they anticipated. A people who walked in darkness will see a great light. Jesus, the light of the world. Large groups of sinners will repent and believe the good news of the gospel. There is a great joy And the same God who provided victory for the small army of Gideon will provide victory through one man, Jesus. The promise of Advent that began in the Garden of Eden will be fulfilled. God himself will do this for his people. This is not even to mention the promises of the new covenant in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, in which God promises that he is going to come and he will shepherd his people. He will find his lost sheep. A day in which the Lord will put his law on the hearts of his people. God is going to make a new covenant. He's going to be doing something better. The the old will be replaced because the better is here. Students, this is what the book of Hebrews has been about as we've studied it the last six months. This is the covenant that we see Jesus make with his church. A covenant not bought with the temporary blood of animals, but bought with his own body and blood on the cross. In which he cries out, it is finished. Previously, I've referred to this grand redemptive narrative of scripture like a tapestry where the threads and the promise of the Old Testament all run together in the fulfillment of Jesus. And throughout the Old Testament, this promise of Advent, we could also think of like puzzle pieces. See, throughout time, God is giving people more and more of the picture and they're anticipating. They, They don't even know what it's going to be like. And when Jesus comes in the Gospels, he, what, what actually ends up happening is he exceeds all of the expectations that the people had, but he also does so in a way more humble way than they ever could have expected. The climax of the story begins when Jesus is born in a manger. And this changes how we understand all of the history of the world. The very way by which we understand the world is changed by this good news because our God is telling a story from beginning to end. All of the history of promise builds in the anticipation of a birth in a manger. The infinite becoming infant. Waiting. And when we sing Christmas hymns like Silent Night, this is what we're singing about. A moment at which all of creation has waited. The setting to right of all things. God with us, Emmanuel. So far, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. We've seen that from the very beginning of the world, God by his grace is making for himself a people of his own. So without any delay, as people who know the goodness of the first advent, of the birth of Christ, the fulfillment of all of the promises, which we can't even begin to mention all of them in the short time. Let's go on to the second point, the first advent, the birth of Christ. Look with me again at Isaiah chapter 9. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now that's an exciting passage, not just at Christmas time. That's an exciting passage. That is a a summary of the good news of the gospel. This child that is going to come is God's gift. This child is mighty God himself. This child's kingdom is characterized by five things we can see in this passage. It's going to be a kingdom of peace. It's going to be on the throne of David. The, the promise fulfilled. He's going to rule with justice and with righteousness. And it's going to be forever. A theologian named Abraham Kuyper once said that there, about this passage, there is not a square inch in all of the universe of which Jesus Christ does not proclaim mine. And he goes on to say, and rule with grace and mercy. I invite you now, if you want to keep your finger in Isaiah 9, I want to read the first couple verses of Hebrews. Because we, we know where the story goes. We live in a moment of history in which we don't, we don't wander into the future wondering what this Messiah will look like. We've seen him. He has come. And so it's not a puzzle to us. We get to stand on the side of the tapestry where you don't see the individual threads weaving together. We get to see and see the picture. So this is Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read the, the first three verses. Long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the king that is born in a manger. Previously, God spoke through the prophets, like what we've read in Isaiah this morning. But now he sent an even greater messenger. And if you think back to our study, even in the Gospel of John over the last couple of years, we see that people again and again are baffled at the authority of which Jesus teaches. He's a greater messenger. He comes proclaiming by his own authority. By the way, his word actually upholds the universe. And God speaks to us by his son, a baby who was born in a manger, the heir of all things, the creator of the world who takes on our sin and is nailed to a tree of his own creation. We see the picture of this tapestry, the story that has been told since the foundation of the world. God's great love, his grace for us from beginning to end. And this changes how we live. We are not people of promise like Israel, but we're the people of fulfillment. The promise that began in the garden has been fulfilled. God promises that he will bring the nations in. And we see in the New Testament, if you read the book of Acts, both Jew and Gentile, Samaria, Judea, to the ends of the earth, all hearing the gospel. We see that there's a servant in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 52 and 53, that will suffer, that he will take the iniquities of his people, that he will be pierced. And in the New Testament, we see Christ die on the cross, cursed, hanged from a tree. We see that there will be a king whose kingdom has no end, 
like God promised to David. Hey, Michael, Linda. Way back in Second Samuel. Hi, passed away. see that in the New Testament. Thanks for jumping on. Jesus is this king. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. I, for a brief moment, and thank you I for your take uh, my preacher today, hat and put Linda. on my youth pastor hat. Yeah. I feel like I kind of have a, a, a right to get to do something a little bit fun. So those of you that are helping me record here, too. I want you guys to, to play along with this so I know how long to pause. Uh, over the past year, you've maybe encountered online a game called Hashtag Explain a Film Plot Badly. And perhaps you've seen it come across on social media or even emailed by a friend. Um, so whoever you're gathered with in person this morning, I want you to try to guess. I'm going to read these short descriptions of a film plot described badly. If you want longer to guess, you'll have to hit pause. I'm only going to pause for like five seconds. I only have a couple. A father reunites with his son and wants him to take over the family business. Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. All right, th- th- this one's for Pastor Wade especially. A billionaire devotes his fortune to playing dress up at night. Batman. Batman. <laughs> Two emotional people get lost in a warehouse for three days on a mission to make a little girl cry. Inside out. <laughs> A group, this is my personal favorite one. A group spends nine hours returning jewelry. This is the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) See, I I have a point to make to my little game. I'll put my preacher hat back on, take off my youth pastor hat. Uh, Hopefully the students did well because I played this with them before. Now, these descriptions are clearly not trying to capture all of the details of the story. They intend to be funny. They intend to be bad. It's in the name. Major parts of the story get lost in these ways of summarizing. When important details get left out of the story, we lose the whole picture. This would be like removing threads from the tapestry. This morning, I'm making the case to each of you that we cannot summarize, we cannot afford to summarize who Jesus is badly. The story is far too important. All of the history of the world leads to this moment where God would come to his people at which he would fulfill his promises. See, Advent changes everything. The birth of Jesus, the first Advent, changes the way we live. These movie descriptions I just read have no context to the story, and they sound ridiculous and silly. They could not put these descriptions on a movie poster and have you go pay to watch them whenever we can go to the movies again. And in the pages of scripture, God is telling a story from beginning to end to his people. And we gain a better understanding of the gospel when we know God's word. The context of the birth of Christ is one of promise. When you read in the gospel of Matthew and see the genealogy of Jesus, um, everyone can thank my wife. I wanted to actually read the genealogy of Matthew here, um, of the Christ. Um, But we see in this history, if you go back and read it on your own later, this is not something for your eyes to glaze over, but this is to celebrate God's grace and faithfulness throughout all of history. The genealogy is important because it gives us the context. What is the story that God is telling? Who is this promised Messiah who is to come? So sometimes sit down and read through the names. If you have a study Bible or there's online resources, go through and find where those people are mentioned in the Old Testament. And I guarantee that what you will see is the fingerprints of God's grace and mercy and faithfulness from the very beginning. God is telling a truly amazing story of his love. And the first advent of Jesus, the birth of the child who is promised, it changes everything in our lives. The story of good creation ravaged by sin, the promise of redemption and salvation, God making a way by the prophets, 
But now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. This good news, the birth of Christ changes everything. As Pastor Michael read last week at the end of the Gospel of John, it ends this way. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We are just scratching the surface as we even look at the the, the promises that we have in the Old Testament about Jesus. We could spend our entire life meditating on this and celebrating and praising our God. But right now, I'd like to slow down. We've covered a lot of ground. We've surveyed most of redemption history from the Bible. Because when we read that Christ's kingdom will be a kingdom of peace without end, I imagine that many of us might be thinking about the death and destruction we see in our world. Where is this peace that goes on forever where the signs of war are burned on the fire, where there is a good harvest that we rejoice over. See, like the people in the Bible, we know broken relationships. We shame others. We blame others for our own sin. We are are also enticed by our own desires that give birth to sin, like the epistle of James says. Just this year alone in 2020, we have seen the effects of sin on our world. Wildfires, protests, covid These things don't even begin to scratch the surface of all the things that have seemed to happen this year, none of which we would probably call a kingdom of peace. We cannot open our inboxes or the news app of our choice or even look out the windows and not see a touch of sin on this world. This is where we turn to the third and final point this morning, the second advent. This question of where is this eternal peace is very similar to asking, where is the kingdom of Jesus? And this is not unlike the question the disciples actually ask in Acts 1. Acts 1, verse 6 and following says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The disciples are asking the same question many of us would think as we read the Gospels. Jesus has established the new covenant by his blood on the cross. He has cried out, it is finished. He has made the once and for all sacrifice for sins. He has died the death that we could never die, but we deserve He has raised from the dead victorious. Now, Lord, will you restore your kingdom, king of peace? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know the time the kingdom will be restored, but you will receive the Holy Spirit and you will be my witness. The disciples know the promise. The king who died for his people has risen from the dead and now they are looking for Christ's kingdom, a kingdom of peace without end. Look with me again at Isaiah 9, 7. I want to look at just the the last sentence here, so um, towards the end of verse 7. It says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And here we are given the reason for this victory and the joy for the people of God, and perhaps even our answer to where is this kingdom of peace? The joy of the people of God is that the Lord will do this. And we know, like Israel, 
that the Lord is faithful. And for Israel, as Isaiah is prophesying, as he's giving God's word to God's people, it looks darkest. It looks like the darkest moment. They are about to be conquered. And Isaiah comes with words of comfort that there's a light at the end of the tunnel because your God is faithful. He was faithful in the days of Midian. He will be faithful to you. To you, a child will be born who will be the Prince of Peace. The zeal, the passion of the Lord, he will do this. And the church, we still experience the despair and the reality of living in a world of darkness. And 2020 has perhaps felt one of the darkest times um, I know of at least my life. And we know the pains of this fallen world, but we also know that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Remember, I began this, this Christmas sermon in the Garden of Eden. And sin is things not being the way they're supposed to be. It's the disordering of all things. It's broken relationship with God, with each other, and even with creation itself. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. So we, while we do not look longingly to the future for the King of Promise, for the, the, the Prince of Peace, we await the fulfillment of Jesus' kingdom. For Jesus' kingdom is both already but not yet. His kingdom of peace is already, and that he has made purifications for our sins. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sinned, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Hebrews 10 says, This sacrifice was once and for all. Or as Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We have peace with God. And Jesus' kingdom is both already, but it's also not yet. We await the day in which all things will be set to right. We've been saying about that this morning. We live in this tension of the already, but not yet. And in this tension, we are given the Holy Spirit and a mission. In Romans 8, we read that creation groans for this kingdom, that it awaits the day like pains of childbirth. We wait for the second advent. We wait with hope. And as Romans 8 goes on to say, it says, Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. We still see the effects and the consequences of living in a fallen world. And during this kingdom of already, but not yet, God remains faithful, like in the days of Midian, like in the days of Isaiah, when things seem to darkest. And our calling is to be a witness, and that does not stop. We anticipate the return of the king. Until that day, God has promised, as Romans 8.28 says, for no, or we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is what we are given. The Heidelberg Catechism, um, it it has this wonderful question. The first question is catechisms. Catechisms just seek to give a summary of what scripture teaches. Uh, and this is perhaps one of my favorite. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And here is the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. 
In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is what it looks like to live in the kingdom of already but not yet. It is to be a people of hope. Living in this tension of the already but not yet kingdom of God, it transforms our hope for the future. Our hope is not in anything that could be made by man. It's not in any politician or king or ruler or whatever the latest gadget or gizmo is. Our hope is in the eternal king, the prince of peace, who is going to come and make all things new. In John 14, we, we see that Jesus actually says that him, him going, his, him ascending, his returning to his Father is for our benefit so that he might send us his Holy Spirit, that he might prepare rooms for us in his household. Or as the, the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Galatia, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus tells us it is not for us to know the day or the hour his kingdom will be fully established. But he does tell his church what we are to do. And he does offer us comfort. First Corinthians even talks about that we can comfort those who are mourning because we've been shown great comfort. We are to go and proclaim the good news, proclaim the faithfulness of God and the grace that we've seen from Genesis to Revelation that God is faithful to his promises that he will return. He promised the advent. The first advent has happened. Jesus has come. He has redeemed and saved us. He has transferred us from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light. And now we eagerly await the anticipation of this kingdom that is already but not yet. We groan, we anticipate the second advent. A day in which Revelation 21.4 says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We anticipate that day, church, a day in which the kingdom will be fully here. Until then, we have confidence because of our faithful Savior sits at the right hand of God. Jesus is enthroned now, and there he intercedes on our behalf. From there, he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. I've asked Nate to sing one of my favorite Christmas hymns by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World. And the lyrics summarize a lot of what we've been doing this morning of this grand redemptive narrative of the story from Genesis to Revelation centered in Isaiah 9, looking at the advent. See, because cursed is the ground with thorns because of our sin. We see that in Genesis 3. Broken and twisted are our relationships. We were cast out of the garden. Our backs were bent down in pain. We were slaves to sin and blame. But the God of mercy comes and he wipes away our tears. This is the joy to the world. This is the story that our God has been telling from the very beginning. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. From Genesis 3, Jesus comes and he is making all things new, a work that he has begun and continues to do. This morning we began in Genesis 3 and we saw the curse of sin infect every aspect of the world, life, relationships, and Jesus' redemption and is coming to set right all things. Throughout all of history, God is telling a story and we truly live in the theater of his glory. Amen.
Our Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that um, you give us a story. Um, you give us you give us words. Um, you give us uh, life. You give us words that we can read, that we can know you better, that our hearts might even be shaped by you. Lord, you 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 love us. You correct us as a father. You've given us good gifts. You've given us um, a gift that this time of year um, we pause and look on with wonder like the angels and the shepherds. Uh, a baby born in a manger come to take the sins away from the world. Come to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand and that he will return and he will make all things new. And until then, he intercedes on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for this. We praise you that there truly is joy to the world, that the story you have told is one of grace and love. Amen.